the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we are back. Pastor Paul Shepard with us today in studio. We invite you to check out his broadcast, Destined for Victory. The program comes your way each Monday through Friday at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. We're talking about Pastor Paul's new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. I was struck you were mentioning about sort of that that trifecta of challenges that we face between the world, the flesh, and the devil. Can all three come under the category? of idol worship. We hear idol worship in the context of certainly Old Testament. We think of, uh, you know, golden calves that have been fashioned <laughs> and so forth and so on. Right. But idol worship can really be almost anything, can't it? That's true. Anything that rivals the attention and the affection the Lord alone should get from us is a potential idol. And of course, that's what our enemies do. Both the world, the flesh, and certainly the devil all want to compete for the throne of our hearts. So all of us need to realize, I have a throne. It's up to me who sits on it. The flesh is most comfortable when it is sitting on the throne. That's your carnal nature, your Adamic self, with you without being led by the Lord, and that certainly wants to sit on the throne. The world, we can see in today's world, we we who are people of morals and ethics, you can see now how greatly challenged those things that many of us grew up just knowing it was right, the moral consensus many of us grew up with is no longer a consensus. It's a moral debate. It is a moral divide. In fact, we are now ridiculed for believing what 30, 40, 50 years ago was taken for granted in American life. All of those things, that new philosophy is competing. And certainly the devil from the very beginning has wanted to usurp the authority of God. So all of us have to be aware. The enemy wants to sit on the throne. It's up to us to make sure Jesus remains on the throne. And perhaps while yet uh, society is uh, debating and changing its mind and the way it views uh, matters concerning uh, morality and and. Uh, flesh and so forth. The reality is God hasn't changed his opinion on any of this. And he does not plan to make any changes. His truth prevails no matter what. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Lord's truth remains forever. When we talk about approaching God to come in and in the desire of seeing God's restorative and redemptive grace take place in our life for whatever the circumstances and situation might be. As you noted, Nehemiah first understood if this was going to get done, God was going to be the one that was going to do it. It could not be done in a vacuum, meaning that he needed God's anointing. But he didn't just say, okay, let's get a team together and run down to Home Depot and buy a bunch of two-by-fours and head down there and start rebuilding the wall. He stopped 
before taking one step forward and he prayed. And, you know, in school we grew up with the three R's. In the book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, you talk about Nehemiah's four R's. Walk us through those. Well, it was important that when Nehemiah realized that he needed God to help him fulfill what was going on in his heart, he first started out recognizing who God is. The first R I talk about in the book is recognizing God. Because without recognizing the divine, sometimes a big problem here on earth can completely overwhelm us. So he recognized God and then he repented of any sin, any shortcoming on behalf of Israel. He said, we have blown it, Lord. And so I repent. And on behalf of your people, we recognize we did not do what you wanted us to do. And then he went into a what I call reminder. So he went from recognition to repentance to reminding God of his promises. That doesn't mean we think God forgot. Sometimes when we pray, I think it would be good for us when we pray to take some of the promises of Scripture and say, Lord, here's what you said to us, and I'm just willing to believe that this applies to this circumstances and to my life now. Then he went into the request, asking God to give him success in his endeavor. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, sometimes uh, folks that promote uh, you know a positive thinking and so forth will, will engage in self-talk. Uh, I can do it. I can make it. I can do it. I can make it happen. All of this. And yet what you're suggesting here is Nehemiah didn't get into self-talk trying to kind of uh, hype himself up like uh, you might before the big game in the locker room, but but rather say, God, here are your promises. As much as he is reciting those back to God, he's also speaking God's word in his own hearing. That's right. That's right. And I think that's what the Bible means. The Old Testament often talks about meditating on the word. For instance, the Lord told Joshua, meditate in it day and night. I think you're right, Craig. What we're called to do is to not only remind God of what he he said and what he promised, but in so doing, we're rehearsing over and over who our God is, because as big as our problems are, our God is so much bigger. And if we rehearse those and meditate on them, then when we go to make our requests, we know that God is able to fulfill them. Isn't it interesting to know that the flow here that so many of the principles that were even employed by Nehemiah in going about the rebuilding of the walls were principles that along the way had slipped by the wayside. Yes. Uh, The idol worship, uh, the lack of proper recognition of God, the lack of recognizing not only who he is, but our ability to to repent, to go before the Lord and say, God, I blew it. So much of what we use as tools, so to speak, to rebuild are the very things that if those had remained in place all along, we might not have been in this shape in the first place. In the first place. And that's what we all have to realize. When I've made my greatest mistakes, it's because somewhere along along the line, I stepped away from the things the Lord wanted me to stay focused on. Back again to Joshua, the Lord said, stay, look at what I tell you to do. Don't turn from it, he said, to the left or to the right. And in today's world, just like in his day, it's easy to be distracted. And when we get distracted, we can get off course. But our God is the ultimate GPS, and he knows how to get us from where, when I'm preaching about that, 
I say the thing I love about GPS is even when I haven't been paying attention to the directions, been playing my music too loud or having too much of a uh, of an argument in the car or whatever's going on, if I get off course, the GPS doesn't fuss at me. The GPS just says recalculating, redirecting, whatever term they use, and it means if you're ready to listen, I can get you from here to where you're supposed to be, and that's the way God works with us. It's an interesting parallel to the Holy Spirit, who sometimes will just kind of gently nudge us, <laughs> gently right. nudge us. We may continue to choose to ignore what the Spirit is saying, but yet God comes along and just continues to lovingly, gently nudge us, trying to move us into the right direction. Yes, he does. And if we will learn that God is the is the one who began the good work in us and he is also the one who promised to fulfill it so if we get go astray temporarily you can do that you mentioned earlier uh, about our finances you can need God to redirect you in in money matters many of us have made financial mistakes and um, are where we should not be financially speaking but if you trust God with your finances or any other area of your life, he's able to get you from where you are to where you need to be. But it begins with repenting, recognizing, repenting, and then reminding God, you said you weren't going to give up on me, and then make your request. Help me to discipline myself in my finances or in my family life and my marriage, whatever it is, and we'll see God work in our lives. We're in studio today with Pastor Paul Shepard, his new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation, some closing thoughts from Pastor Paul. Meanwhile, if you want to get more information, the book again is available online. You can simply go to the usual suspects, Amazon.com, or you can order it directly through the Destiny broadcast website, PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. Destined for victory, heard weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. That brief time out, then back with more, some closing thoughts with Pastor Paul Shepard as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're into the home stretch in our visit today with Pastor Paul Shepard. His latest book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. The book, again, available through Amazon.com. You can also order it online through the Destined for Victory broadcast website. That's simply PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. One of the things that you point out in the book, and I think that this is not only uh, um, problematic as to what gets us in trouble, but it's also something that we need to be mindful as we're attempting to kind of get back out of trouble, and that is the word authenticity. Um, You take note that oftentimes there are a lot of folks in Christianity, as our relationship with the Lord sometimes sort of ebbs and flows, that our our Christianity is either a way in which we deal with our stuff, or for a lot of folks, it's the way in which we hide from our stuff, or we hide ourselves behind our Christianity. Put on a happy face, everything's great at church, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and we think we've got everybody fooled, and we might have a lot of the folks fooled, but the one that we don't have fooled is the Lord himself. I, I really am working hard to help people understand, um, t- to use the 
colloquial expression, there's no future in fronting. There's no point in putting on airs because what we need to be about is getting in touch with who we are, where we are in our lives, and letting God take us from where we are to where we ought to be. So I talk, as you say, about authenticity, the importance of being honest with yourself and honest with the Lord. And so whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, don't hide behind uh, nice, cute sayings or anything like that. Find some people, especially in your life, in your church, in your circle of fellowship with other believers. Find people who can love the truth and still walk with you as you go from where you are to where you ought to be. And if we will be authentic people and build authentic relationships, we will see that our authentic God is going to bring us through and bring us out of everything we have to deal with. We're sometimes perhaps fearful. We don't want to wrestle with God. (laughs) Uh, It's not just a uniquely Job experience. I think all of us have had moments in life when we've gotten into that kind of conflict and we literally feel like we're in a wrestling match with the Lord and yet God can handle it. Yes, he can. And, you know, I'm reminded, as you pointed out, regarding the the four R's that Nehemiah practiced, that that one of them is repenting of sin. Yes. And a big part of that authenticity is to be able to say to God, I blew it. I maybe am in this mess because I put myself there. Absolutely. The scripture is very clear. If we will confess then the Lord is faithful and just to forgive and to do the work of restoration. But it requires the confession. That's one of the things that's hard to get some people to do. Just like Adam and Eve hid from God when they should have come clean and said, man, we really messed up. Please forgive us. They hid. They they covered themselves. And God says in his word, if you cover your sins, you won't prosper. But if you repent, confess, forsake them, he will bless you. What's the big takeaway? As you have studied the life of Nehemiah and the challenges that he faced in the call to help rebuild the walls, for people that are saying, okay, I'm I'm beginning to really grasp this, but at the end of the day, the big takeaway here, the big lesson of the life of Nehemiah that we can apply to ourselves here and now is what? I want people to understand that the word almost is a word that we ought to take as a message of hope. The enemy tried his best to destroy Jerusalem, which housed, of course, the people of God. And when they got back from exile, they found they did not have a a safe and secure place to live. But almost destroyed is different from definitely destroyed. God is a God who takes our almost and turns them around so that we can see success even after almost failing. And I want to encourage every listener to to know wherever you are in your life, the almost is not going to be the end of you. That will not be the final statement of the story of your life. Give it to God. He'll take you to the places you've never seen or known before. And clearly, Nehemiah saw that. I mean, mean, because as he got the report of what had happened 
to Jerusalem, it wasn't, well, the whole thing is destroyed, the walls are all down, the city is in ruin, so, you know, let's just forget about it here. We'll just not uh, not worry about it. No, he, he saw that he saw that potential. He saw that while it might have been destroyed almost, it wasn't completely and utterly. So there's that sense of glimmer of hope, isn't there? Absolutely. And we are called to be people of hope. We have a good message to share. We are in the gospel business, not the bad news, not the destroyed business. We're in the business of saying, yeah, it was almost destroyed, but God and God is able to give us victory out of the almost disaster. And I guess for the believer today, if you've gone through the challenges at work, in the family, with your marriage, in your finances, with your health, whatever it might be, if you're listening to this conversation, you're still here. Yes. You might have almost been destroyed. That's right. But you are still here. And there is therefore still hope provided that you take the Nehemiah approach to how to go about rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed in your life. In my church, I recently preached a message entitled, Get Your Hopes Up. I grew up where there were times when parents or teachers were going to take us on a special trip, um, but maybe they got a bad forecast for the weather and they'd say, oh, don't, don't get your hopes up. We might not be able to do it. My word to you today is no, get your hopes up. Believe God that no matter how disastrous it is, he is able to bring you into a better place. And I think at the end of the day, remembering that God is in the business of being restorative and redemptive, that is the perhaps the one area that we can hang our hope on. Yes, sir. Absolutely. God is a restorer, and he'll do it in your life and mine. The book is called Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. (laughs) Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah, newly published and available through the website pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. The broadcast destined for victory weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. And, of course, Destiny Christian Fellowship. Service times at 8.30 and 11 a.m. located in Fremont. You can get details on the web at destinybayarea.org. Lots of exciting things going on at the church, Pastor Paul. Yes, sir. And not only that, I've recently taken on an additional responsibility to help pastor a church clear across the country in Detroit, Michigan, while remaining the senior pastor of Destiny here in the Bay Area. So if you if you don't have enough to pray about, keep me on your prayer list because I need the Lord's strength. But I know if he gave me this charge, he'll help me fulfill it and I'll help both churches fulfill his plan for them. We'll be praying for you. We appreciate the time today and the insights. Pastor Paul Shepard, host of Destined for Victory and senior pastor at Destiny Christian Fellowship. Details again on the web, pastorpaul.net. The book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago I had the opportunity to sit down with my dad and have kind of one of those adults-to-adults, father-to-son, heart-to-heart talks. And I I had to admit to him, albeit perhaps a bit begrudgingly, that I was amazed at how, how smart he had become down through the years. 
know, it seems like when we're teenagers, our parents just don't know a thing, and we have all the answers. Then as we grow up and begin to get into this world of life and have our own experiences and eventually go on to raise our own families, we come to find out that Dad, in fact, wasn't all that dumb after all. In fact, he was a pretty smart guy. We set that as kind of the tone for the beginning of our conversation today with a voice that's certainly familiar to KFAX listeners. Um, In addition to his responsibilities as the co-host of the uh, Daily Focus on the Family broadcast uh, heard here on KFAX, Uh, he's also got a a budding writing career going on, and uh, one of his latest books is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, and uh, Great Advice Just in Time for Father's Day. Pleased to have join us on the program this afternoon co-host of Focus on the Family's Daily Broadcast and uh, author, and perhaps most importantly, father and husband, John Fuller. John, great to have you with us. Craig, thank you for uh, inviting me, and you're right. Uh, of all the titles I've had throughout the years, Daddy is the best one. And isn't that amazing, you know, because often we guys identify ourselves certainly as husbands and as fathers, but then, of course, we have to get the career in there. And, and, and so much of our workday, of course, uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, uh, is wrapped up in our identity that oftentimes we fail to recognize that perhaps one of the most important roles we have, certainly when it comes to the job that God has given us, is that of father. It is, and it's an irreplaceable job. I mean, it, it, guys don't want to admit this, but we're for pretty much replaceable at work. I mean, there aren't many of us who are indispensable and irreplaceable. But at home, uh, my kids have one dad, and that's it. And um, and if I don't show up for that job, if I don't throw myself into that one with as much energy and enthusiasm as I do uh, my real day job, if you will, or uh, my golf game, or whatever the side hobby is, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out on a great deal of of the richness of the journey of parenting, and my kids are gonna be shorted too, and they're not gonna get the kinds of things that I can give them anywhere else. Now you speak to this with some degree of authority as a father of six. Um, when you first got into this, um, when uh, you and, and your wife, Dina, were about to have the first child after a, a great deal of effort, we might add, uh, I'm sure, John, there must have been a sense of fear and, and, and amazement and, and a little bit of trepidation at all of us. But then, too, was there a little bit of an idea that, you know, this can't be all that difficult? I mean, after all, you know, my dad raised me and I didn't turn out all that bad. <laughs> How did you know? Yeah, and and let me say that if I have any expertise, it's not because I've written a book. It's because for 20 years I've been running into brick walls and stubbing my toe and making mistakes left and right as a father. So uh, my expertise is probably probably born more out of failure than anything else. Um, no, I think I think I was guilty of that. Uh, to answer the question directly, I I thought. Um, kind of naively that, yeah, this is one more thing that we do. We become dads and that you can just kind of check that off the list or move on. And that's not really the case. Uh, it was a lot of change. It was like a scud missile coming out and just blowing up my world. Uh, all of my expectations about how the relationship with my wife was going to continue on, um, my expectations about my job performance, my expectations about hobbies. All of that was out the window when Dakota was born uh, almost 24 years ago now. It was, it was 
it was a change, and it was a hard change, but it was a good change as I learned to navigate it and deal with it. And I guess the navigation, I'm glad you choose that word, John, because some, so often I think some guys think that, well, I'll just go out and take a couple of parenting classes or read a book or think what my dad would have done and either copy it or in some cases think of that, what dad would have done and do the opposite. You know, But a lot of this is really navigation, isn't it? I mean, there, it, it, the baby didn't show up. I mean, the hospital bill came along with it, but there was no manual, was there? Yeah, they, the kids don't read those books anyway, and so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it, it, the first cha- the first chapter of my book is called Great Expectations, because I think that really does, that's where we have to start. As a new dad, we have to get our expectations in order and just ask ourselves, as I go into this, what what exactly am I forgetting? And, and what are some of my hang-ups about this? I mean, most guys don't want to fail, and most of us, I think, feel uh, uh, that failure is imminent as a new dad because uh, the, the, the baby doesn't react like I thought babies reacted, and this is a lot harder than I thought, and I'm now sleep-deprived, and my wife is sleep-deprived, and she's got hormonal changes coming off of the pregnancy if she gave birth. Um, there are all sorts of communication issues. Um, man, I, this thing just has loser written all over it. So I don't run toward it. I run away from it. Well, if you expect it's going to be hard, if you expect it's going to be a, a great lifelong journey to be a dad, but that it's a wonderfully rich experience and it's, uh, it's a great gift from God to entrust a child into your care and that this little kid's going to be used by God to chisel all the rough edges off of me and make me more like Jesus, then it's it's a whole different ballgame then. Now, your book, John, uh, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, really uh, culminates in your years of experience being the father of six uh, and being able to kind of help uh, first-time dads in particular uh, get the priorities straight and maybe learn them a thing or two, as my, my grandmother used to say. Mm, yeah. One of the points that you mentioned very early on is uh, babies are easy. I mean, sometimes, you know, outside of the 3 o'clock feedings and the interrupted sleep and the, the major change in lifestyle that suddenly happens, happens, uh, we get used to it early on and then begin to think, oh, well, it can only get easier. It can't get any worse. And, yeah. <laughs> Boy, it sounds like a voice of experience right there. Um, yeah, I, I, I think every season has been good. My, my two oldest are adults. They're out of the house. And uh, my third child that just turned 18, we still have a 16, 13, and 8-year-old in the house. So I'm still living with a lot of younger and and teenage uh, things, I've got to say that that your babies are probably one of the easier stages. Um, I hate telling a new dad that because at times it feels like this is so hard. Um, but the rewards increase as the difficulty increases. And uh, sometimes I'll tell someone, I have three teenage daughters in my home. Pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> but... I also follow that up real quickly with, a, you know, I love those girls so much. And I'm not sure there's anything better than when they say goodnight, they come up and they want their hug and their little kiss on the forehead. That, to me, is, uh, that's, that's priceless right there. I can't buy that kind of affection and love from a child. And, and those teen years are precious when the girls still come my way and, and look for my advice and seek out their daddy. So every season is great. 
babying is hard because you're, especially if you're first time dad, if you're first time dad, because you don't know what to expect and how to, how to deal with all the, the issues that newborns have. But once you get the hang of it, it's pretty easy. But it does become, as we move along, there are certain complexities that are inherent to all of this, aren't there? I mean, number one, obviously, for growing families, you're adding not just child number one, who now has grown and gone through the baby years and maybe is either a toddler or a little bit further along. Now along comes child number two. Now there's a balancing act between the two. And so as there is the the exponential growth of the family and the responsibilities, one of the other things, too, that I think oftentimes, John, becomes a major hang-up for, for younger dads that are kind of still figuring all of this out is we see then too an exponential growth in a lot of the demands outside of the house, meaning that we're beginning to hit the pace in the career and the job and maybe we're moving from, you know, entry level positions to middle and upper management, more responsibility. Then too we're thinking, well gee, the family's getting bigger. There are more demands on my time, more people that are counting upon me. I've got to bring the bread in because, you know, this is not just child rearing expenses. Someday there's going to be education costs and weddings and all of these things. And so suddenly, in addition to a bigger demand for our time in the house, as husband and father, there are oftentimes, too, John, lots of demands for our time and attention outside of the house. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Craig, because um, I've observed the very same thing, and it's a concern to me, and I've experienced the very same thing. Um, You know, we had one and then two and then three children, and uh, the responsibilities at work were great. Uh, I mean, I'm working at a ministry. I know that that uh, that it's it's valuable for me to pour into kingdom work, and yet I feel the tug at home, and and at the same time, uh, I've got single friends uh, who are in their twenties and thirties, and they're doing things like running marathons, and I want to do that, and there is a jumble of stuff going on there, and uh, if I can share just personally, I, I came face to face with priorities and with the challenges of work and career and. Uh, when my oldest was about eight, he uh, he was really uh, acting up, and we were having a hard time with some of his some of his behaviors, and uh, so much so that we sought out a counselor here at Focus on the Family. We talked to one of the Focus counselors for about an hour, and uh, she she listened to us and asked some questions, and then she turned to me and she just said, "John, I think your son is acting up because." He wants more of you. Mm. You're not home very much. You're working on your master's degree, and that's on top of a pretty intense full-time job working on the radio programming at Focus on the Family. So, um, you know, you just need to throttle back. And I I, I was nailed. (laughs) I mean, come on. I work at a family ministry. I know family stuff, but I was guilty of doing too much outside the home. And and some of that was a search for significance, if I can be honest with you. Some of that was a need to kind of, you know, hold my, pull my weight and hold my own against peers who were doing some things. But some of it was, uh, I think, a right passion to, to get equipped to do the next things that I thought God had for us as a family in the kingdom. Uh, still, I had to just reset and say, wait a minute, what's really important here? And I had to kind of push back on some things so that I could spend more time with my son because he needed me, and he was only eight once. Uh, if I missed that window, he was on to nine and then ten. It, uh, I would have missed him altogether if I wasn't careful. 
And that's such a critical point, and I want to pause right here because this is a point that needs to be really underscored because, as John Fuller points out, it is easy to kind of get caught up in not only the striving for significance, but you feel like you're doing things that are of critical importance for the family, bringing home the bacon, all of that. And yet this time only comes once, and it comes so rapidly. And for a lot of guys that might say, well, gee, but... What about some time for me? I mean, there's these hobbies that I'm involved with, and I'm trying to work on the golf game, and I've got demands on me, not only at work, but but the men's fellowship and responsibilities as church, as a member of the board of deacons. I just want to be able to squeeze it all in together. You get one shot at doing this right, guys. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with John Fuller from Focus on the Family. The book, First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know, just in time for Father's Day, published by Moody, and you can get it through John's blog. It's easy. Just go to johnfullerblog.com. That's johnfullerblog.com. When we come back, learning to balance the time and prioritize for first-time dads. It's all the stuff you need to know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, we're talking today with John Fuller, co-host of Focus on the Family's daily radio broadcast, heard weekday mornings at 9 a.m. with a reprise broadcast at 9 p.m. right here on KFAX. John is also a budding author, and uh, his latest book is called First Time Dad, The Stuff You Really Need to Know. Great gift in time for Father's Day. And, of course, the book published by Moody and available directly through John's website. Just check him out at johnfullerblog.com. In addition, of course, to some great resources there, John also spends some time moosing on his experiences and insights and comes at this topic today of parenting with a bit of expertise. Oh, not just because he's the co-host along with Jim Daly uh, there of Focus on the Family, but because he's a father of six and he's got a bit of that road warrior experience. John, just before the break, we were talking about this idea that there become, as the family grows, so many demands on our time, and particularly for the guys out there, we feel as if, gee, we have to bring home the bacon, and we're busy developing our careers, and we've got our, our sights toward kind of the end game of uh, educational responsibilities. That's going to take a lot of money. Daughters in the family, that's going to take more money for the weddings. So we, we tend to get very busy on the outside with the career, but we want a balanced life, so we volunteer at church, and we're on the board of deacons, and in order to relieve some stress because we don't want to be shooting off, uh, you know, all that pressure at home. Uh, We've got the golf game that we're working on, a a hobby or two. We want to get all of this stuff kind of sandwiched into life in the early years, figure we're young and we've got the energy, why not? But there's some flawed thinking with that, isn't there? Mm. Well, I think there is, and it has to do with, uh, with something we were talking about earlier, and that is the window of time. Listen, if you think that parenting is an 18-year journey and you're done, you're wrong. Uh, there are a couple of things I'd say to that. Uh, that fallacy is, is wrong because, A, you really only have 12 to 14 or 15 years to really shape your child because by the time they're 14, 15, 16, they're choosing independence. They're, they're longing for adulthood. They're moving toward adulthood and your influence is going to wax and wane for the next several years. So if you think in terms of window, time of window, it's not 18, it's a little less than that. Plus, um, if you think that at 18 you're done being a dad, you're wrong. My two oldest have moved out. I still stay in touch with them. I love that. That's the payoff 
for the foundation of the early years, uh, pouring into their lives when they were younger. And not perfectly, but I tried. And so um, if you want an, an ongoing relationship with your child that is rock solid and good and tight and close, and you want that from, oh, say, the time they're 18 until, you know, you're in the grave, that's the bigger part of your life with your child when they're an adult and they're saying, see ya, I'm going back home now, or they're calling you on the phone saying, gotta go, the kids are, are needing me. That part of the relationship is what you gotta think of now. You gotta think long term toward the, 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 uh, the target. Um, I love the psalmist in Psalm 127. He says, children are an arrow uh, that you have, parents. They're an arrow in your quiver. And arrows are not defensive weapons. They're offensive weapons. You take the arrow, you pull it back, and you're aiming at a target. You're not hoping it's you know, going to go somewhere. You're planning on where it's going. If we would approach fatherhood that way, I think we'd, we'd have an easier time prioritizing, uh, saying no to some things, and we'd have a bigger impact on our children than we might if we're just busy all the time and chasing the wrong stuff. So focusing, uh, John, so to speak, on the end game, as you say, because let's face it, when we think of how we want our kids to turn out, we have an idea in mind. You know, we want them to be uh, good citizens. We want them to raise a successful family of their own. We want them to, to walk in a relationship with the Lord, maybe be involved in ministry. I mean, we, we all have dreams and visions for our children. So imagine that now when they need you, uh, in those formative years, you got to be there to invest the time because, you know, payback can be terrible, John. And later on, it's amazing that if you're not there for your kids when they're younger and they really need you, um, got to set those expectations right because later on, someday you're going to need them. Yeah, well, well, that's a that's a very true point. Um, if I could, uh, I know a guy, and let's just in the book I call him Mitch, and um, he, he, I was talking to him, and and I asked how the family was doing, and he said, well, not so well, and he shared some things with me that just were very sad. Um, he had one child that just really didn't want anything to do with him, another child who totally disregarded her her parents' wishes, and got married very early, and um, he was he was kind of standing, thinking, what happened? Well, what happened was, he didn't work on the foundation, um, and if, uh, I lived in Texas, and you had to treat the foundation for termites, uh, because if you didn't, they were going to, they were going to chew it up, and uh, of course, that makes for a really rotten house over time. Uh, you got to pay attention to the foundation, which is those younger years, and you've got to be willing to uh, readjust and and make sure that you're investing in the part of your child's life that is the most shapeable, the most uh, formative. And we know that that the, that it's never too late to recapture that relationship to work on it. But um, you know, by the time they're seven, eight, nine, they've got their ideas about who daddy is. And um, and I hope I'm not throwing guilt at guys. I don't want to do that. Like I said, I, I myself was uh, confronted with my own uh, shortcomings in this. I just want to encourage a new dad to be thinking in terms of this is some of the most essential time. So right here, this is it. If If I can get this right, if I can show up and love my child, spend time with my child, show I care to my child, uh, it's possible that I'm going to avoid a situation like Mitch's where they're in their teens and they don't want anything to do with me. Well, and, you know, I think, John, also, too, the big kind of 30,000 
foot high viewpoint on this thing we call life to put it in perspective. Uh, all of us perhaps have known older people, older saints that have gone on to be with the Lord and, and others who in their waning moments of life, as they're kind of taking the inventory, I've never heard anybody about to end their earthly presence here say, oh, if I'd only spent more time at the office, gee, if I'd just gone to a few more conferences and meetings and spent more time uh, uh, dealing with business, then I would be satisfied in life. No, you never hear them say that. Instead, they say, if I'd only been a better husband to my wife, a better father to my children, if I only spent more time with the kids when they were younger, uh, or with my grandkids. I mean, those are the things that if we miss out on it when we have the opportunity the first time around, you don't get a second time at this. You don't, and um, and I, if, I, if I can share a story, my father-in-law passed away uh, at age 89, uh, just a few weeks short of his 90th birthday in December. And um, I, I was asked to speak at his eulogy, and one of the things I said was, I want my kids, I hope I can do this, I want my kids to love me and have as much respect and admiration for me as my wife and her sister and brother had for their daddy. They loved him, and they adored him, and they miss him deeply already. Um, that that kind of affection and love from a child comes because you were there. And it doesn't have to be you were taking them to the theme park and you were doing all these things that are expensive or time-consuming. But it does mean that you were there consistently offering your attention, meeting that child where he or she is at, recognizing he or she is uniquely wired and needs something different than the rest of them, um, when you try to meet your kid where they're at, when you simply say, you know, you're more important than me finishing this fence work, or, yeah, i got to check email for work, but I'm not doing that until you're in bed. Mm-hmm. When, when you say, hey, let's play a game, and they forget about it, and you come back and say, I, I, I wanted to play a game, that just says to a kid, love, love, love and and so it takes conscious choices and um you know if you do that um there is a payoff a rich payoff absolutely and of course another great invaluable resource uh, take a little bit of uh, insight from the voice of experience uh, john fuller who's uh, now child number six so he's got a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, power behind what he says all detailed inside the pages of a book called first time dad the stuff you really need to know the book published by moody and available uh, through of course you can try it at uh, bookstores about the bay area but best place to check it out is on john fuller's blog check him out at john fullerblog.com that's john fullerblog.com and uh, catch him weekday mornings and again in the evenings 9 a.m and 9 p.m as co-host of focus on the family heard right here on kfax well john we sure appreciate the candor the insights and the encouragement for first-time dads thanks so much for spending some time with us today that's going to do it for this edition of lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.